Our scripture reading is found in Luke chapter 20, verses 20 through 21, 4. <clears throat> Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be honest. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the, the power and authority of the governor. So the spies questioned him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right, and that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? He saw through their duplicity and said to them, Show me a denarius, whose portrait and inscription are on it. Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, then give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. They were unable to trap him in what he had said there in public, and astonished by his answer, they became silent. Some of the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. <clears throat> Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one, <clears throat> one married a woman and died childless. The second and then the third married her. And in the same way, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age that, and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die. They are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. But in the account of the bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. Some of the teachers of the law responded, Well said, teacher, and no one dared to question him anymore. <clears throat> then Jesus said to them, how is it that they say the Christ is the son of David? David himself declares in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? While all the people were listening, Jesus said to the disciples, Beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. As he looked up, Jesus saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. I tell you the truth, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, 
but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. May God be pleased with the reading of his word. Today we continue in chapter 20 of Luke, and we see why it is often referred to as the questions chapter. We have people <clears throat> coming to Jesus and asking him various questions on varying topics. Last week we saw the religious leaders question Jesus' authority to do what he was doing. Now there is nothing wrong with asking questions if you are truly interest, interested in, in truth and, and getting the right answer. However, it's an entirely different matter when you, uh, when under the uh, disguise of sincerity, questions are used to set traps and used as crafty weapons to confound and indict someone. Such is the scenario before us this morning. And this is clearly stated in verse 20. Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be sincere. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. The enemy of Jesus had failed to trap him on questions of religion and religious practice. Now they shift the topic and, and bring up politics. Mark identifies these questioners in 12:13. Later they send some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. Should we pay taxes? And we, we may wonder why this shift in tactics. Since they had not been able to successfully trap Jesus into blasphemy and turn the people against him, now they wanted to try and have him commit sedition against Rome. The Sanhedrin did not have the authority to execute a man. That power rested with Rome. If they could get Jesus to say something against Rome or Caesar, they could get the Roman authorities to deal with Jesus as a dangerous revolutionary. So these religious leaders approached Jesus, fawning over him with flattery. The spies questioned him, Teacher, we know that you speak the truth when what is right, and that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? In their words, they spoke truth. Jesus, in fact, always spoke and taught the truth. Likewise, Jesus did not show partiality in speaking God's truth. The word translated partiality literally means you do not look on anyone's countenance. The meaning is that Jesus never varied his message regardless to whom he was speaking, whether rich or poor, learned or unlearned, sick or healthy, master or servant, sinner or saint, his message was steadfast to all. All this was perfectly true. However, it was all just empty flattery by which they sought to deceive Jesus. We hear echoes of Matthew 15:8, where Jesus said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In their question, they hoped to put Jesus on the horns of a dilemma. The tax they spoke of was the poll tax. In addition to the common tax, this was an annual tax paid by every male under the authority of Rome. Remember back at the beginning of Luke's Gospel, uh, chapter 2, verse 1, he writes, 
In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Well, that census was to calculate this annual tax. It was hated by the Jews who felt that money should go to God and his temple, not to Caesar, who ascribed divinity to himself. It was the cause, this, this was the cause for a number of violent protests and consequently violent put-downs. Should Jesus answer, no, don't pay taxes, he could be accused of insurrection, a crime punishable by death. If he answered, yes, pay your taxes, he would alienate the people and be seen as some sort of collaborator. So they felt very satisfied that Jesus was trapped by the trick question. And yet he saw through their duplicity and said what he said. He was not naive or fooled by these men, as the next verse shows. The word duplicity is also translated craftiness, cunning, trickery, and is applied to the devil's tactics elsewhere. This then is no simple question designed to stump Jesus. There were major consequences involved. We can almost see these Pharisees with arms folded snugly and smiling, awaiting his response. We continue. Jesus answered, show me a denarius, whose image and inscription are on it. Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. They were unable to trap him in what he had said there in public, and astonished by his answer, they became silent. Jesus answer is priceless. Asking to produce a, a denarius and asking whose image is on it, in effect he is saying that it belongs to Caesar, therefore render it to Caesar. This part of the answer left no room for the accusation of disloyalty to, to Caesar. Even more importantly, <clears throat> Jesus uses the next word, and. And to God what is God's. Jesus affirms by this his loyalty to God. The two actions are connected by and, which means to do both. As commentator Leon Morris states, it means that we can, can neglect neither, neither loyalty. The state must be respected and its directions complied with in the share that God allots it. Government and church were created by God and have two different spheres of function, yet both are within the all-encompassing sphere of God's sovereign rule. Remember the words of, of Christ when he stood before Pilate in John 19, 10 and 11? And Pilate asked, Do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? And Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Even in what appeared to be Christ's helpless state, God was exercising sovereign control. The government's function is to maintain order, protect and provide for its citizenry. This is what the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 13, one through seven. 
Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay your taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Jesus' answer to his audience is to obey the civil authorities and pay the tax. The teaching expanded on by Paul applies to us as well. Pay your taxes. Now I know none of us, myself included, like paying taxes and we all complain they are too high. But did you ever live somewhere where taxes were lower but you didn't have the public services you were accustomed to? You know, for a year while I was doing interim ministry uh, 20 odd years ago, I lived in the upper northwest corner of Connecticut in a very rural area. One thing they didn't have was garbage pickup. I had to pack up my garbage and recyclables and drive a few miles to the collection station and dump it myself. Uh, I'm no, no expert in economics, but without taxes, there are consequences. You know, in, in our so-called Christian nation, there exists what is called a shadow economy. Simply stated, this is where you get paid, but don't pay taxes on the income. All the so-called off-the-books income is illegal and unscriptural and is ultimately disobedience towards God. Experts estimate that the, the shadow economy earns $2 trillion a year with no taxes being paid. And of course, with less taxes going into the government, those who are honest and pay their taxes are asked to pay more to make up the deficit. We should think about that the next time that, that service person gives us two prices, the cash price and the higher price for paying with check. So Jesus said, give to Caesar what bears his image. But it also implies giving to God what bears his image which each and every person bears. Everyone should be rendering loyalty and obedience to God, for they bear his image. Genesis 1.27, God created mankind in his own image. 
In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. This is a profound truth, especially important to remember in our day. Whether you are black or white or any shade in between, we all bear the image and likeness of God. That one fact should cause us to respect one another and accept one another as equals. Even James in his letter shows this in chapter 3, 9 and 10. It reads, With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Respecting one another includes not cursing one another. Christian, how are you doing obeying that today? This is what you are called to do. This is respecting the likeness of God in us all in a very practical way. Yes, our, our nation desperately needs to practice this. But let's look first into our own hearts and minds and ask how respectful we are of being uh, towards others, regardless of skin color. This is one aspect of giving to God what is God's. The state and the church each have their sphere of influence and function. History has sadly shown the often disastrous consequences of overlap and losing balance when the when the church became too political and when political lead, uh, rulers ruled the church. However, this does not mean there is to be no influence across the boundaries. Daryl Bach of Dallas Theological Seminary noted, though we can seek it, the church's call is not to reform culture because reformation cannot take place by changing structures alone. Hearts must be transformed. The dynamic for that kind of structural and internal change exists in the church community, which serves as a light, a place to which people should be able to point as one that operates differently than the world. The church should be able to show the world what healthy relationships would look like, how the needs of the poor can be met with compassion, what absence of racism looks like, how people can engage in business with integrity, how reconciliation takes place when people have failed one another and so forth. While our church is not perfect, I do believe those are values we reflect. No sooner had Jesus silenced the Pharisees than the Sadducees showed up. Now there were some major differences between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. As one author noted, the Pharisees were members of the middle class Jewish families that were committed to upholding the Mosaic law. The Sadducees, on the other hand, hailed from the Jewish aristocracy. The Sadducees, therefore, were exposed to a uh, a more secular education than the Pharisees, and even acknowledge Hellenism. The main differences between the Pharisees and the Sadducees concern the understanding of the function of the Torah in Jewish society. The Pharisees believed that God would send the Jews a Messiah who would bring peace to the world and rule from Jerusalem. 
They also believed that all circumstances that affect the lives of Jews were divinely ordained. The Sadducees did not believe in a coming Messiah and heard, uh, held that that man has freedom of will and creates his own circumstances. Specific to this question, the Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection or life after death, while the Pharisees did. So the question posed by the Sadducees, who did not believe in the resurrection, is stated in an almost mocking way to discredit the idea of resurrection. In the Law of Moses, Deuteronomy 25, it states that should a man die childless, his brother was to marry his widow and produce an heir in the dead brother's name. In an air of ridicule, these Sadducees fabricate a what-if question. If a certain woman marries seven times without bearing a child to any of her deceased husbands, whose wife will she be in the hereafter? Now remember, the Sadducees don't even believe in the hereafter, so the question is trying to disprove the probability of a resurrection. Jesus begins his answer by referring to an everyday life here. The people of this age marry and are given to ma in marriage. People of this age mean people living here on earth, then and now. Marriage is normal. But Jesus goes on. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die. For they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. The first statement Jesus makes establishes belief in the age to come and in the resurrection. He also notes that there will be qualifications for admittance being those considered worthy. No universalism here. Then in the eternal kingdom, there will be no marrying. And this the reason is tied to the procreation or having children. In his answer here, Jesus is upholding a major reason for marriage, which is to have children to replace you. But in the resurrection and glory, they can no longer die, hence they do not need to replace oneself. Death cannot touch those resurrected to life. It is eternal life. It does not say we will not recognize our spouses. It just states there will be no marrying. But Jesus is not finished yet. He goes uh, to correct the Sadducee er error by appealing to the only scriptures they recognize, the Torah. He uses the calling of Moses in Exodus 3, 4 through 6, where God speaks to Moses from the burning bush. But in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise recalls the Lord, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. For to him, all are alive. In citing these verses, Jesus is noting the present tense of the statement. It is not, I was the God of Abraham, but the whole verse starts, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, etc. The second point is brought out by one author who writes this statement. 
the statement of Jesus infers the absurdity that God would broadcast a covenant relationship with persons whose existence had expired. Remember, the Sadducees believe death was the end of existence. In Mark's gospel, Jesus ends with the words to his questioners, you are badly mistaken. That is why Jesus calls him the God of the living, not the dead. And notice in verse 39, it is not the Sadducees that respond, but rather some teachers of the law saying, well said. Now, teachers of the law believed in the resurrection. Hence, they, were, they appreciated his arguments that challenged the Sadducees' position. They were kind of like, yay, Jesus, good answer. <clears throat> Jesus then goes on the offensive and asks his own question. Jesus said to them, why is it said that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself declares in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? Within the Gospels, Jesus has been addressed as son of David. That is a messianic title. The people, in, in essence, expected another king like David. To understand the, the use of these verses, we must accept the Jewish thinking that the older, former generation was always viewed as wiser and worthy of more honor than the current or future generations. From that perspective, the Messiah, as son of David, must be lower than King David. A father would never bow to a son. However, in speaking of the Messiah, David says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. To sit at one's right hand was to share authority with the king in this case, being God. So David is saying that the Messiah, though a son by lineage, would be far greater than King David, even to the point of sitting at the right hand of Yahweh. If this is the case, then how could Messiah be just a son? He must be both, son and Lord. If David recognized his son as Lord and Messiah, and gave homage, calling him Lord, then why weren't the religious leaders doing the same? In a sense, this, this quote is answering the question of the chief priests and teachers of the law, which opened the chapter, by what authority are you doing these things? It is by God's authority, an authority even David recognized by calling the son of David Lord. On our side of the cross and the empty tomb, we more clearly see the sovereign power of Christ, who has triumphed over death, death in the grave. He is the one before all enemies will submit. Because he is Lord, we should worship, adore, and obey him as the Lord he is. Obviously, as we have seen again and again, the Pharisees and Religious leaders and teachers of the law refuse to acknowledge Jesus' claims. And the chapter ends with a scathing public warning. While all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, Beware of the teachers of the law. 
They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Power corrupts and pride blinds, and these religious leaders demonstrated both. Holding positions of leadership in which it was proper to respect them, they abused that position and developed a condescending attitude towards others. They loved and sought after the public acclaim and made show in their robes. In their role as advisors to widows, the most vulnerable group, they were being dishonest and greedy and often stealing what little they possessed. Jesus warns that such as these will be punished severely. Many, many times crimes are committed with the perpetrator ignoring God or thinking he does not see. Psalm 10 is addressed to such as these. In part of it is in, in his arrogance, the wicked man hunts down the weak who are caught in the schemes he devises. He boasts about the cravings of his heart. He blesses the greedy and reviles the Lord. In his pride, the wicked man does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. His victims are crushed. They collapse. They fall under his strength. He says to himself, God will never notice. He covers his face and never sees. Arise, Lord. Lift up your hand, O God. Do not forget the helpless. God does see and will bring judgment upon all such wicked men. Though it may not be in this life, it is coming, and we can be most assured none will escape. Having mentioned the widow, Jesus looks up, and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly, I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gift out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. Jesus <clears throat> here calls attention to a devout widow, moving the focus off the hypocritical religious leaders. While we often focus on the generosity of the widow, Jesus is also continuing his castigation of the leaders. All the other wealthy ones were giving a larger amount, but a smaller percentage of their wealth than the widow. Rather than comparing what one person gave to what another gave, Jesus calls comparison to what each person gave in comparison to what they had. Earlier, as recorded in Mark 7, Jesus takes to task the scribes and Pharisees for hypocrisy that would impoverish parents. It reads there, For Moses said, Honor your father and mother. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corban, that is devoted to God, and cannot be touched, then you no longer let them do anything for their father and mother. The sad fact was, that the temple and the leaders should be showing generosity to the poor widow, but were using the system to take even the last two cents from this widow in the name of God. 
This widow's devotion and sacrifice is to be applauded. She truly believed in God. Let me say, treasured God and gave all she had left. True giving always involves sacrifice. However, there was something wrong with this picture. The same religious leaders who would reduce widows to poverty also encouraged them to make pious donations beyond their means. The whole system had become corrupt and counterproductive to what God had intended. We should think of some of these TV evangelists and Kenneth Copeland and Benny Hine who pressure people, most who are poor, to give money and more money that they can't afford with the promises of God's blessing. Jesus had an anger declared of the temple just before you made it a den of robbers. Therefore, not only the religious leaders, but the whole system as well would be punished severely, as we will discover in the rest of the chapter. Now, we covered a lot of ground today in, a, in viewing almost a potpourri of topics. We saw how Jesus rightfully balanced and upheld the relational principle between state and religion, declaring both spheres of influence necessary. We need to recognize that principle as well. So yes, you do need to be honest and pay your taxes. We are also called to be good citizens and live and work within the law. We should be very thankful that we live in a democratic society and have peaceful avenues open to us to change laws that need to be changed. While that is good, we know that complete lasting peace will only happen when the Prince of Peace once again sets foot on earth. Because he has risen, as believers, we know that a better day awaits us. The resurrection is real for Christ, as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. As we recognize Jesus as the Messiah and Son of David, our salvation is secure because the resurrection is certain. This is our blessed hope, looking forward to future glory. In that great day, we will see confusion give way to clarity, chaos give way to order, discord reconciled by love. In the words of the hymn, there is coming a day when no heartache shall come, no more clouds in the sky, no more tears to dim the eye. All is peace forevermore on that happy golden shore. What a day, glorious day that will be. What a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see. And I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace. Even so, come Lord Jesus, amen and amen. Let us pray. Our gracious Lord and heavenly Father, how we praise you and we thank you, Lord, for your blessings upon us. As we close this service, Lord, we want to thank you for Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. And we thank you for the 
the glorious truth of resurrection. We thank you, Lord, that this, this life will pass and that we will indeed live with you eternally in eternal bliss in the new heaven and on the new earth. We thank you for that, Lord. We thank you for such grace and for your love. We praise you and we thank you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.